You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. On uh, some cereal packets, children's yogurts, specialist foods for pregnant ladies, you'll often get a little sign saying this food has been fortified with whatever it is, vitamin B12 or iron or thiamine or whatever. And um, the idea is you add something extra to strengthen the food, to make it more, more powerful, more useful, more healthy or whatever. And uh, so we have this idea of fortification in everyday life. And fortification uh, is what God wants to do for us today. He wants to fortify our understanding of what love is. Actually, to help us to understand that love takes that old-fashioned word, fortitude. Love is not a wimpy thing. It's not uh, uh, soft in that sense of always, always uh, yielding. It's, uh, there's a strength to it. And that's amply illustrated in, in this passage. Uh, love is not coexistence. It's not tolerance. Love is desiring and acting for the good of the other. And to act for the good of the other, to start something and to, to continue in something and to see it through, takes strength. And we see that in this passage. Jesus says he desires fire. He's, um, he, he's come to bring fire on the earth and how he wishes it were already kindled. He talks about this uh, being in distress until his baptism is, uh, that he's got to undergo yeah, comes. And that word distress, it's not necessarily that he's upset. It's that sense of being stretched, waiting, that sense of anticipation, that sense of not, I can't wait for it to be over because it's bad, but I can't wait for this to happen. It's like being stretched between two points in time. And he, he says he's come to bring fire on the, on the earth, and we could think about what that fire imagery might be, and we might even be tempted to tone it down into being something just pleasant or easy, the fire of the gospel. Yeah, well, it is that. The fire of Pentecost in the church. Well, it, well, it is that. Is it also the fire of judgment? Well, yes, it is that too. What is this fire he's talking about? It's the fire of God's love poured out on the earth, but he doesn't let us get away with a soft definition of love. He immediately qualifies it by talking about, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? no that word is very surprising isn't it the prince of peace is telling us that he's not come to bring peace on earth well in an absolute sense of course he has I mean we know the we know the ending right but what he's saying is that the road to that ending is hard it's painful, it's difficult. There is going to be division. And as the Lord looks out prophetically about what's going to unfold as he continues in, in his ministry on earth and as he uh, launches himself in, into that baptism which he has to undergo, he's looking forward and he's seeing the consequences of the gospel, of Pentecost, of judgment going out into all the earth. And he's seeing that there is going to be division, that actually real families will be split. Some people will become Christians and some people won't. Some people will be disowned, disinherited, kicked out, uh, abused, martyred even. 
perhaps even by own family members, immediate or, you know, um, extended family. He's seeing that. He's seeing that partial hardening that's going to come upon Israel that uh, Paul talks about in Romans. You know, he sees that. That's, that's got to be painful, right? To know that that's going to be a consequence of the gospel. And he's, he's seeing that, that um, history unfolding and he's seeing nations falling and empires crumbling and, and good things falling to the wayside, things that are temporarily good, falling to the wayside because of the upheaval that's going to come because the gospel is being poured out into the world. And of course, he's looking for, in his own life, he's looking at the, um, the upheaval that's going to happen, you know, for, for him as he walks to Calvary, as he carries his cross, as he hangs there for you and for me and receives upon himself uh, all the punishment for our sin. There's this pain that's ahead. There's this division. He is, experiences the, the separation of sin for our sake, so that we can be united to God. But what is all that for? For the amazing, amazing reward of the church. That people will be saved. That people will be forgiven their sins. You and me are going to be here, forgiven of our sins, uh, united with Christ, eternal life laid out for us. He's, it, the, the reward is the, the bride of Christ. The world saved, reunited to God. This amazing eternity that the Bible um, paints so vividly for us. So, surprising, yes, but you see he's, he's giving us this fortified version of love. Love is the goal. The church, the salvation of the world, the obedience to the Father is the goal. The peace, the eternal peace that will come, the shalom of God that will uh, cover the earth and fill all things at the a- end of time is the goal. And yet to get there, there is pain. There's separation. There's division. There's a trial to be gone through, a baptism to be baptized with. That has to be our understanding of, of what love is. And, and the, the second half of our reading is, is, is kind of the same thing, really. It's not perhaps so obvious that he's talking about the same thing. But he's saying that actually there's a tendency in us to imagine that if we're doing God's will, if we're doing the right thing, everything will be easy. So the point of self-deception. That's what he's saying, really. So you, because of the hypocrisy that's inside you, because you don't understand God's ways, he's saying to the people who are listening, even though the signs are really obvious, you can trick yourself into thinking things uh, are going to be easy. I mean, a good example is... Um, uh, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah was given the message by God to the king in Jerusalem that you have to surrender to Babylon. <laughs> and everyone else was saying, that, that can't be right. But Jeremiah, could, he could see the sign of the times. He could see what was going on. And he had God's word burning inside him and it enabled him to see what was, what was really happening. And so he spoke God's word, but it was incredibly unpopular. You know, he ended up thrown into a system because nobody wanted to hear what he was saying. Because there was this idea that, you know, if we're on God's side, then it's going to be easy. And the the popular thing will happen. The the thing that everyone wants to happen will happen. And God is saying that that's that's not the case. So Jesus is, is, is fortifying our 
definition of love, and he's saying that love involves sacrifice, involves pain, it involves division. If we're going, if we're going to follow in his footsteps, we have to, we have to understand those things. He's, if you like, he's calibrating our understanding and our definition of the word love. He's saving us from this, this kind of wimpy definition. And I don't normally give titles to my sermons until I write the home group notes, but you know, the title for this sermon is Don't Be a Wimp. <laughs> love is not wimpy. Love is not wimpy. And actually, there is a prophetic element in that uh, correction that God is speaking to us today because something in our culture, in what we experience, what we've grown up with, has left us with a rather wimpy, I think, understanding of what love is. That actually, there is a reason why a lot of non-Christians and a lot of Christians too, unfortunately, think that love and tolerance are, very, are basically the same thing. That that's, it's good enough for us just to get along. There's, there's a reason for that. That we're very skeptical about being assertive. We're very skeptical about confrontation and about the dangers that, that poses. And people talk about things like toxic masculinity, which is basically a way of saying, don't confront anyone. <laughs> because it's, you know, it can be misused. It can be. So we're very, we're very wary of that in our culture. We're very wary of, of confrontation and the, the downsides of it. Uh, in church, we're very aware of those things. There is, you know, in our church culture, there's a, a tendency to associate when things are easy with being in the spirit. There's a tendency in that. You know, when, when things come naturally or they're easy or there's a, uh, um, a pleasantness about things, then we can say that's, you know, the, the spirit is, is at work there. And actually, I think there's a, a necessary kind of prophetic judgment adjustment there actually sometimes god asks us to do things that you know your heart's in your mouth and you're you know pounding in, in your chest and like it really doesn't feel great to say this thing or to do this thing or there, there are hard elements to the christian life a deep and you know long-lasting sacrifice uh, painful over many many years and actually sometimes god leads us to places where we feel very far from him and we can still be in the center of his will if you want to put it that way and have you know these these feelings of like i am in great distress i'm in straits, as the old translation put the verse we read. There is something, and this is really the, the first point, about love itself that involves sacrifice. Sacrifice involves pain, unpleasantness. And, you know, God in eternity it's probably wrong to say God needs fortitude because in eternity everything is, you know, eternally present to him. But as he gifts us, gives love to us into our lives, that translates into, if we're going to love like God, it tra- translates into this strengthened fortitude, uh, fortitudinous thing where we need to sometimes persevere or do what's painful or take risks where um, we put ourselves into difficult situations or undergo uh, painful transformation. That is the very essence of, of love. You know, it's, it's occurred to me in the week, and I was listening to um, an overview of uh, Book of Numbers, and it was talking about that bit where um, after the Israelites send spies into the promised land, and they go and scope it out, and a couple of spies come back and they say, no, it's terrible, it's going to be awful, and and Joshua tries to persuade everyone it's going to be okay. And there's a kind of rebellion. And Moses speaks to the Lord. And the Lord says to him, I'm angry with this people. I've had enough. 
I feel like giving up on them. And I was just, as I was listening to this being read, I was like, Lord, why did you, why did you share this, this with us? It doesn't seem to be terribly edifying, you know, it doesn't seem to increase my view of who God is. And I just felt this, this answer is actually this, this anger at, at the, uh, the behavior of the Israelites at the time, this, this, this suffering with them, this kind of, I can't believe their lack of faith. See, that wasn't the end for God. What he actually did was, he listened to Moses' prayer and he said, I'll, I'll, I'll take you up on your, what you've said, Moses. I'm going to bear with them. And then he pronounces this uh, description of himself. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. That's who he is. But this, the substance of that comes from the fact that he suffers with these people, that there's pain involved in adopting a nation and rescuing them out of Egypt and trying to get them to understand who he is. There's, there's suffering involved. And, and God's love involves that sense of sacrifice. And as he translates that into things we understand, he, he communicates himself in this way. So love involves that. And really that's, that, that's uh, you know, the, the first big point I think God would... Uh, say to us a kind of the the big doc, doctrinal thing, I suppose, for us this morning. It's just that acceptance that love isn't always easy or pleasant. Actually, there is a kind of we just have to grasp the nettle, as it were, in every part of our lives, and say you know, love can be really, really hard, and you know the gospel can cause division, and you know, uh, but even the Prince of Peace can say, "No, I've not come to bring peace for the sake of, of love." And, uh, you know, I think that upsets our definitions of love, but I think it's, it's so powerful. The, um, Jewish American writer and, amongst many other things that he did, uh, Elie Wiesel said this, the opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference, is a famous quote. You heard that one? The opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. The opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. Um, you know, on a similar note, um, Dante's Inferno portrays the lowest circle of hell. I mean, it's not scripture, okay, but, you know, it's poetic. The lowest circle of hell uh, is not fiery. <laughs> it's not fiery. That's the highest circle of hell where people are caught up in passions and that sort of thing. The lowest circle of hell where Satan is, is like a block of ice. It's cold and dead and there's indifference. You know, it's, that's the opposite of love. At the heart of love is this passionate, strong thing that fights for what it, for what it desires to do, that desires the good of the other and fights for it. Even undertakes almost impossible things to give that love to others. Love is as strong as death, it says in the Song of Song. Stronger than death. You know, that's what love is. It's strong and it perseveres and it's, it's able to, to do what is, what is hard. So there's this, there's this big kind of, um, adjustment God wants to, to put into our minds and say, you know, get rid of this, the wimpy, worldly idea of love that just says, never offend anyone, never do anything, you know, to upset other people, never go down that path where you're gonna make enemies or cause problems. That's, that's not what love is. Love is desiring the good of the other so much. But you'll stop at nothing. You'll stop at nothing. Nothing will stop you. And I think that's a, a really powerful message.
us. There's a, a kind of a buffet of things that I think God would speak to us about specifically from this. So I intend to give you uh, a tasting menu of about six small dishes rather than a three-course meal um, this morning. Um, just there's so much you can say about the, uh, about this strength aspect to to what love is. There's so much to say, and you know I was thinking about what to say, and, and these are the things that I feel God would speak to you, uh, maybe us as a whole, maybe to individuals about uh, this morning. Uh, the first is this is um, Yes, this understanding of God's willingness to uh, do whatever it takes to love really helps us to understand his actions in our own lives. Knowing that God will stop at nothing really helps us to understand what's going on in our own lives. You know, God sanctifies us through his word, church, but also through the things that happen. You know, he changes us to be like Jesus through the things that happen in our lives. And you don't need me to tell you that some of the things that happen in your, in your life are not pleasant. And often we find ourselves asking, you know, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Um, and maybe there's even stuff happening right now. <laughs> you're, you're asking that question for you or for someone else. Or, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very... The desire, I find in myself, the desire sometimes for me to turn around to God in prayer and just say, just... Please, would you leave me alone? <laughs> not that I'm good enough. I don't think I'm good enough. It's not like I think, oh, you finished. Oh, yeah, oh, not enough. You know, I know there's a lot of work to be done, but I just, I'm, I'm sometimes I'm quite tired of the, you know, the renovation. To be honest with you, <laughs> you ever feel like that? You ever feel like God? You know, has anyone ever prayed that? Lord, please, maybe just a little break. <laughs> I, well, we have to be honest in prayer. I don't think it's blasphemous to speak like that. Lord, leave me alone. Um, I was speaking to um, our dear friend Steve and Heidi, and um, Steve was very ill. Some of you know the story, and you know he'd uh, and uh, he was so sick uh, in the middle of the night. And Heidi bugged him about six times to ring uh, the doctor again and again and again, to the point of. I think probably after the second time, he was probably quite annoyed with her, I should think. <laughs> and I think he actually said to, said to her, just leave me alone, leave me alone. And in the end, I think after the sixth or seventh time, I think either he or maybe she actually rang for him or the doctor or something like that. Paramedics came immediately and basically his life was saved. He'd, he had this major, major infection because he's in a wheelchair. He doesn't, you know, experience the same symptoms and everything. And if it had been a couple of hours later, it was really 50-50 because they got there through Heidi's perseverance. <laughs> you know, there's a good chance his life is safe. You know, so thank God for that. But, you know, we have this instinct, don't we, of, of leave me alone, sometimes even against our, our better judgment, because we're, you know, we, we, we don't know what God is doing. We don't really know what kind of big things he's fixing in us. Sometimes we're saying to God, God, can you leave me alone? I don't really want to go through this trial, this difficult situation. I don't want to be reminded about that thing in your word. I really don't want to listen to the sermon right now. You know, I've just, I've had enough. Can you please leave me alone? And he's trying to save our life. You ever had, you know, a timely warning when you've just kind of like, I really don't want to go to church today and you've gone and God has rescued you from an amazing, you know, uh, dangerous situation? And, and so understanding that God is willing to inflict pain on us, to not stop bugging us, to cause division in our own lives where we're kind of like, even to the point of like, Lord, I, I, I'm almost done with you. 
He's willing to risk, you know, even that relationship. He's willing to say hard things and do hard things and take us through hard things. To even endure some of the blasphemies we hurl in his direction as we go through those hard things. Because he's, uh, he's that servant who washes our feet. That king of kings who humbles himself to serve us. You know, understanding that is so key to us processing difficulties and suffering in our own lives. C.S. Lewis puts it in his usual pithy and helpful way. Um, he says this, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping leaks in the roof and so on. You knew these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. And this is the, the best bit. He intends to come and live in it himself. You know, God isn't, he's not, he is perfectly, he's perfect in the way that he takes us through these things. You know, the, the flip side to what I'm saying is the danger that we kind of imagine him as one of these kind of military fitness instructors. He just doesn't know when to stop. Like, oh no, I really actually am going to collapse now. And, uh, you know, court cases and all that sort of thing. You know, he's not that. And, and that's an equal part of that trust. Knowing that he will not um, break us, even though he takes us through hard things. It's that perfect trust he wants us to, to rest in. So it helps us understand God's love, his willingness to take us through those things. Okay. I think God would speak to us about um, being wussy in our relationships. Those are my words, <laughs> not the Bible's. But actually be, being willing to give and to take uh, correction, to speak bravely to one another. I think that's apt. Yeah. You know, we, we live in this age where, like I said, we're very aware of the power of words and of how damaging they can be and how coercive they can be. And all those are they're valid warnings. You know, some of the questions that people are asking about the way we use our language and that sort of thing are valid warnings. But, you know, there's some kind of really weird stuff happening in the world around us like safe spaces at university where you can't talk about certain subjects. You know, lectures at university now all over the country have what they call trigger warnings, where they'll tell, uh, you'll have the subject title of the lecture, and they'll say, this lecture may contain references to these subjects. And it'll be stuff that, and, and if you don't want to talk about this stuff, and we're not talking about like really extreme things particularly, but if you don't want to talk about this stuff or, or whatever, then you don't have to go. Because uh, people will be triggered by it, and it basically means they'll feel anxious. And they'll feel like, oh, you know, trapped somehow. Uh, you know, that's that's a pretty extreme reaction. Now, I, I don't think I don't know of any churches that have trigger warnings. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to do any trigger warnings on my sermons anytime soon. It would definitely spoil some of the surprises. <laughs> um, I don't think church is supposed to be a safe place. Not in that sense, is it? Um, you know, God wants us to be aware of the power of our words. He wants us to be careful and caring 
and loving and you know gentle with each other. But he doesn't want us to be just entirely passive. He wants us to be, he wants us to have fortitude in our love for one another. And that sometimes means facing up to difficult situations, saying things that need to be said, saying hard things to each other. Isn't it? In, in family life. To speak, you know, specifically, not generally. You know, we, uh, in our parenting, for those of us with uh, children, you know, thoughtless parenting is, is a, it's a love that lacks fortitude. You know, and um, these days, the dangers that face kids, just through a lack of involvement of their parents in their lives, because it's just easier just to kind of like, oh, it's okay to let them have that, and everyone else has got this. And, and the dangers that face kids are, are, are terrible. You know, like the, the average age, I'm sorry to talk about this really in church, but it's, I'm being brave and talking about something that needs to be talked about. The average age at which a, a boy will see uh, pornography on the internet is between the ages of 10 and 12. For the, you know, for the first time. Because it makes you think, doesn't it? How hard is it to install an internet filter? It takes an hour of your time. You've got to ring up the company or whatever, I don't know. Or to, you've got to pay someone 40 quid to come around and do it. You know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a bit of effort. <laughs> and there are dozens of things like that. There are, there are things again and again in our parenting where we, we have to say no to our children or we have to or usually no for the hundredth time to our children. You know, <laughs> there's that pressure of just, it's hard, isn't it? Guys with young kids, it's hard to say no and no and no and no again and again and again, or to discipline again, or to hold your line when you've given them standards or what you know. You said we're not doing this. It's really, really hard. But love holds that line. You know, the Bible says, you know, it doesn't quite mean what we think it means, but it does say spare the rod, spoil the child. Lack that means lack discipline, and and you're not loving your kids. It's hard. I I find it hard. To be consistent and earn all those things, and you know, I want to be friends with my kids. That's, I think, that's part of the cultural atmosphere we've grown up in. That instinct, I want to be, and actually, it's it's a sin for me to abdicate my responsibilities as a father and just want to be their friend. Just want to get along and never say anything hard. Well, you know, it's it's wrong. You know, uh, again, to speak to families, you know, wives sometimes you need to say hard things to your husbands. You know, stop doing that. Start doing that. <laughs> it's okay. You to do it in a gentle way, in a, a way that's befitting the gifts that God has given you as women, not with rebellion or all those things. But you, you should say those things as as their sister in Christ, or if they're not Christian, as the best evangelist they've got in their lives. Husbands, you need to say things to your wives that need to be said. It's it's okay. It's not it's not ungentle. It's not unchristlike. Did Christ ever correct? Yes. <laughs> Did he ever say hard things? Yes. You know, it's not unchristlike to do those things. Um, in all our relationships, we need to do those things. You know, just the whole, you know, this is a minor point, really, but just conflict avoidance in your workplace, in your friendships, with your neighbors. It's, it's, it's indifference. It's not love. So just to let things go and let things go and let things go until you're really bitter with somebody and you don't want to look at them or speak to them anymore. You know, the arguments about Leylandii or, you know, hedges or whatever it is. That's not love. To, to you know, it's, it's 
bravery is love. Go tell your neighbour that you're really fed up that their tree's ten times taller than it used to be, or whatever it is. <laughs> and you know, take a gift as well, soften the blade. But you know, be brave. <laughs> I know this is I know these are everyday things, but but you know, aren't these like these are real things, aren't they? And actually, if we leave them, they they do become cancerous. If we don't, um, if we if our love isn't fortified, then it. it it turns into something really, really ugly. And, and really bad things can happen. So uh, sorry to talk about everyday things, but actually it's really, really, really important. And of course, in church as well, you know, the Bible has so much to say about giving and receiving rebukes well. It's quite a lot, actually. Just that, you know, a, a flick through Proverbs between around 25 and 27, you'll find an awful lot. Words from a friend can be trusted. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Like an earring of gold is the rebuke of a wise judge to a listening ear. Better an open rebuke than hidden love. So, yeah, don't be a wussy relationship. So maybe there's something, you know, some brave thing that God is calling you to do or to say. Something to face up to. Something hard. It could be positive. It's hard to give praise sometimes. Something you need to address. I just uh, encourage you to, to do it in love. Not don't do it in love. Um, thirdly, a brief one. Guard against everything that makes you indifferent. In, if indifference is the opposite of love, there are certain things in our lives that make us indifferent to the plight of others. You know, Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man lived in such opulence and indifference to God, such wealth and luxury, he couldn't see the suffering of the poor man who was at his gate. And, and there are things in our lives um, that can make us indifferent to the sufferings of, of others. You know, we can, uh, cynicism can infect our, our love for others. You know, humor can af- affect our love for others, like excessive you know, the Bible has an awful lot to say about mockers, doesn't it? You know, and, and there's a fine line between humour and mockery. And, and mockery can make us indifferent to the suffering of others. You know, listen to what James says. This is, I didn't prepare this, so excuse me as I turn to it, but in James 5, and he talks about the effect of wealth on our attitude to the poor. Um, and this applies to most, well, pretty much all of us, I should think. Um, Relatively speaking, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in this day of slaughter. You condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Just the ease of living, the world we live in that makes every consumption so easy and luxury so easy can deafen us to the little, little acts of justice that we can do in our everyday lives. So just, and I don't have anything more specific to say on that, just that I feel it's on the Lord's heart, just to give us that warning, avoid all things that make you indifferent. Heed that warning you know, to um, a church at Laodicea, don't be lukewarm. Which is a form of, you know, ice coldness, really, in another way. 
Okay, fourthly, I think God would remind us to use our anger to love. Anger and love are not opposed to one another. And, you know, our my proof text for that is when Jesus clears the temple. You know, some people, I saw, I've spoken to I think at least three or four people over the last few years who have said to me, not, you know, not Christians or people who are struggling with their faith, they've sort of said, you know, even Jesus was imperfect because there was that time he got angry <laughs> in the temple, you know, he lost his temper. And actually, they missed the point that actually to love is to be open to the possibility of anger. Mothers, if someone threatens your child, it is completely appropriate to feel angry, right? That's right, isn't it? That's, that's, that's part of love. And, you know, even judgment and hell and God's anger against sin and the exclusion of some people from heaven is directed against preserving and protecting that which he cherishes deeply, which is his church and his creation. You know, those, that's his judgment against sin is designed to protect his, his bride. So, uh, and Thomas Aquinas says this about anger, um, He's, you know, clever Christian that we should listen to a lot of the time. <laughs> he says that anger is always a response to injustice. Now, sometimes it's perceived injustice, and, you know, it can be pride in us that gets anger because we feel hard done by. But actually, often anger is a, is a response to injustice. And what it's for, why has God given us the gift of anger? Why? So that we fix things that are broken. So where is there, and this is, uh, this is a kind of dangerous, it's a bit like throwing dynamite out, I suppose, but where is there righteous anger? You know, in, in your life, where is there possibility? So some of you, it might just be a really small context. It might be something that's just not right at work, that's really, really frustrating you. Like, you know, this, it's just not right that this is happening again and again. And God would say, take that sense of injustice and fix it. Be brave, use it to be brave, to be courageous, to have fortitude. Or something in your home or a relationship with somebody else. Or, you know, like we said in church, take that sense of injustice and, and use it well. And even if you're wrong, you take the risk. Maybe it's something bigger. Maybe there's something going on in the world. Maybe God has a calling on your life to, to fix a bigger injustice. Maybe there's a social issue, something that's close to your heart. Something where you have the ability to do something about. And, it, you know, you read about it on the news or you, you, there are people in your life who it affects deeply. And every time you think about it and pray about it, anger rises up inside you. And God is saying there's this, this potential rise in you. It's not just to frustrate you and make you feel powerless. Take it and use it. Use it to fix poverty or to change the way people think about uh, their communities or a moral issue or something. You know, take it and use it. This, this power that God has given you. Anger is the energy that drives us to correct injustice. Is that okay? Did I get away with throwing that dynamite in? Is it too dangerous? Just, okay. Fifthly, I think God would just remind us to speak prophetically to our culture. I found this quote the other day, but I'm not going to say who it is because I'd never heard of them and that would make me sound cleverer than I am. But it's a good quote. Nothing is more difficult and nothing demands more character than to be publicly opposed to the times and to say no loud and clear. <laughs> Shall I say it again? Yeah. Nothing is more difficult and nothing demands more character 
than to be publicly opposed to the times and to say no, loud and clear. There is an inbuilt, God has given us an inbuilt humility, and I think probably you and I, Nick, were talking about this the other day. Um, like, have you ever been in a situation where you, there are two cash machines and one queue, and people only use the cash machine on the left or the right, only use one of the cash, it's a silly example, but it's, I'll make an important point. Ever been in a situation where, and people only use one on the left, and, and you ask the person in the front, and you say, oh, why isn't anyone using that? And they say, oh, it's because it's broken. <laughs> and, uh, and so, like, ten people in a row just use one cash machine, and then you work up the courage to go and actually look to see if it is broken, and it's not. The person that told you, somebody had told them, and everyone had just assumed it was broken. Ever, ever been in that situation? Something like that. There's an inbuilt humility in us that if a load of people say, oh, this is wrong, or this is right, where we want to go, oh, okay, well, if everyone else says it's true, then it probably is true. That's good. That's a God-given thing. That's, you know, a God-given humility. But because we live in a broken world and a broken society, and we're surrounded by people who don't know God and his rules, actually, often, when a whole group of people say something is right or wrong, and we find ourselves saying, is that, is that right? Actually, often we're on the right side. That's what it means to, to be prophetic. And sometimes it takes courage to go against that instinct. You know, actually, it's really silly, but actually it takes a little bit of courage to get out of the queue and go and look at the other cash machine, doesn't it? Because you think, uh, everyone's going to look at me and say, oh, why don't they just take my word for it? <laughs> just a little bit of courage. If it's hard to do that, how much harder is it is when the whole culture is saying, you know, you can be one sex and a different gender, for example, and to say, no, that's not true. When everybody is saying it. It's really, really hard. It takes fortitude. If you can see something as bad, because you're looking at it through the lens of God's word, and you can see the consequences are going to be terrible, and nobody else is saying anything, and nobody else is doing anything, there is a good chance that you are not in the wrong, and it is right to speak up or stand up or do whatever it takes, whether it's to one person or to a whole community or to a nation or whatever it is, whatever context God places you in. Have courage. Take courage. Take courage. There's an old quote, and it's, it's, a, good, it's a good quote, even if it's um, been coined many times. The only thing that's required for evil to prosper is for good people to do nothing. Is there something that God is calling you to do? That until now you've been scared. Sixthly, that's a really bad way to preach a sermon, but anyway, sixthly, <laughs> we have to accept that the gospel divides. I, naturally speaking, I just want to win everyone to the gospel in a really pleasant and lovely way. I want to find people who are just, they're already Christians basically, and just got to get them into church and <laughs> get them baptized. You know, I just, I want it to be easy. I want people to like me. I want it to be non-confrontational. You know, that's, I don't know, that's just my personality. It's partly that. And, you know, I don't know. And there's a bit of that in all of us. We want to be winsome for Christ. I remember hearing, um, uh, the flip side to that, I remember talking to a pastor once and we were talking about involvement in local schools and he said, oh, we're not allowed to be involved in local schools. Uh, our local school doesn't invite us in. They did once. It was a primary school. They invited us in once, and we did an assembly on hell, and we told, <laughs> and we told all the kids about the eternal. Talk. And he was being serious; he wasn't joking. 
But we told all the kids about the eternal torments of hell and described them in, you know, kind of capture their imagination and said, you've got to become Christians. And the school never invited us back. And um, now for him, it was a badge of honour. Because the school were opposed to us. We'd been brave. The gospel brings division. So we were doing the right thing. That's not what Jesus is talking about, <laughs> I don't think. You, we can, you, know, you can almost make a... a a weird kind of um, twisted kind of triumphalism about like if everyone's opposed to us and everyone's offended and that sort of thing, you know, you're then going to end up like one of those wacky Westboro Baptist places, aren't you? Like if everyone's opposed to us, then we must be in the right. And guess what? You'll be like the only people in the right in the whole world. Um, so that's not what Jesus is talking about. We are to be winsome. You know, Paul says, I became, I become all things to all men that by all possible means, some might be saved. But he was also very comfortable with the fact that the gospel would offend people. And God would just, I think, um, I think in general he would say to us, he wants us to be brave and actually to, to risk relationships, to take that risky step and, and to uh, speak to that person who perhaps you've been putting off sharing your faith with because you have this sense that it's going to cause some problems for them. He's saying that your strategy of just being nice the whole time is not a godly strategy. There needs to be bravery in there, whatever that looks like. Whatever that looks like. And we have to accept that. The gospel divides. I think God will just challenge. And I think maybe there's a couple of people in this one that's particularly relevant to Well, I was talking about uh, Thomas Aquinas earlier, and he said, um, uh, I mentioned this at the beginning as well, that we require fortitude in love in three different stages. We require the strength to to begin something, and the strength to continue something, and the strength to finish something, which I think is a great way to to look at it. And they are kind of distinct stages, aren't they? Like we experience that when we're doing hard things as like kind of, Okay, I'm going to do it, and then you do it, and then you're like, oh, I really want to give up, and then you, <laughs> and then there's that satisfaction of, of finishing, even though you've had all that temptation of like, oh, what's it? What's the point? <laughs> you know, in this passage, we're in this turning point for Jesus, where he's in the middle of that, he's in straits, he's greatly distressed, he's pulled in two different directions between the beginning, when in eternity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit decided that they would freely and with infinite generosity and grace and mercy save us from our sins. And all that that would cost, the giving of God's only son. And he's in the middle of it, on his way to Calvary, his face set towards Jerusalem, determined to get there. And there will come a point at which it's, it's finished. When every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now I said um, that I titled this sermon, Don't Be a Wimp, but actually that's not the gospel, is it? The gospel isn't pull your socks up and try hard. The gospel is that this fortitude, this eternal strength that God has to begin and to continue and to finish loving us is a gift that he wants to give us. To be able to love him like that. To be able to love one another like that. 
It's a gift that he gives us in Christ, that we get to share in that, what is frankly heroic, isn't it? Courage, faithfulness, graciousness, compassion that never stops. We get to share in that. We get not only to be recipients, but to overflow and pour out with that love. And God wants to give us that again and again and again, and especially so this morning. So shall we pray?